Da, da, da. And we're rolling. Janet, Evan, what's up? Joe. How are you guys? Good Excellent. to see you. Good to see you. Strange times. The weirdest times ever. Yes, but Felix is still intact. The restaurant's we're there. We yeah, will we, we're talking about restaurants that have been just destroyed over yeah. the rioting and the looting and the, the chaos. And you guys, you got lucky. You dodged a bullet. We did. Very happy to hear that. Well, I think Abikini got a, a bit of warning and all of Abikini boarded up. And so we boarded up. And the National Guard is still there today. What the fuck? <laughs> so strange. It's so wild. It, does, it doesn't make any sense. Like, if you told me that something happened in L.A. and people were rioting, I'd be like, well, if it happened in L.A., it kind of makes sense that people are upset. And then you said, but they're smashing businesses and, and, and destroying restaurants and destroying small stores and family-owned businesses. I'd be like, well, wait, why? Why are they doing that? Like, there's no rhyme or reason to this. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I understand yeah. why people are pissed. Pull that fucker up there. Evan, come on. We're just talking Evan. about it. How's my level? <laughs> You're good. good. Better. Right. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it now, right? It well, is. but I also think there's been, you know, thousands and thousands of peaceful protesters yes. out there. So, th and the press is really not focusing on all the peaceful protests, which is our right to protest. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be, you know, a a bad apple everywhere, and then you're going to get, you know, hundreds of people that, and I think you were, you were saying, uh, you know, on your la last podcast, it's a bunch of young people that don't know where, yeah, where's your iPhone made? Where are you going to get your shoes made from? And they're not thinking about that. They're just thinking free running shoes, and yeah. this is fun, and we've been locked up, and, mm -hmm. like, let's get For out there. and weeks. Yeah. They've been in their house. It's the perfect TV. storm of, cr of craziness, yeah. right? A disease we thought was going to kill everybody. And then, so everybody shuts down, and it turns out it doesn't really kill nearly as many people as we thought, but we still have to be shut down. And then, like, when do we get to go back to work? And then all of a sudden, hey, you guys can open up. Like, you guys got no warning. No warning. No warning. I mean, I called Janet up when it happened, and I was like, what? You just, you get to open? Like, but it takes 10 days to get staff ready. That's what you said, right? Yeah, I just had a, a friend uh, send me a text message. Hey, so you, are you open? I hear you can be open now. And I, I mean, it was just dropped in the news before, you know, any, we could have any time to prepare. And, you know, we don't have the staffing. You need, you need, we need at least 10 days to be able that, to open our I doors. Mean, that's really our biggest challenge is getting our staff back into the restaurant and feeling comfortable in the restaurant with all these new regulations. And you have state regulations, you have LA County regulations, you have City of Los Angeles regulations, and each one of the documents are like novel length. So I'm sitting there at home reading all three cross-referencing, and we basically have to abide by the most stringent rules. So I'm like picking apart each one, okay, trying to decipher what we can actually do. And then on top of that, we're trying to get people out of their houses because they're scared shitless to come back. Because are they, the wild, the, well, the wild card is the clientele coming I in. I think people are going to come back in droves. I think if you were open full capacity, you'd be fucking sold out instantly. I really don't think there's any issue at all. I think there's so much fear mongering going on, but I think the re the, the the actual attitude of people. Way more people are interested in going out than are interested in in being I agree with you. locked up 100%. for longer. Well, I think it's like different, um, you know, groups of people. So you have young people who want to go out and they don't care and they'll, you know, seat, be seated at full capacity. But um, if you have any kind of health risks or you're older, you're not going to feel safe to go out. And, you know, the restaurant business, 
when you're even allowed to be seated at 100% is a really, really difficult business. And I think the pandemic really showed the inherent weakness of this industry that we run on razor-thin profit margins. Now we're allowed to be seated at 60%. So do we pay 60% rent then at that point? Yeah, our, right. co- our costs don't go down you know, 40%. Right. We're still paying 100% of our costs, 100% of our labor, 100% of our rent. You know, the cost of food doesn't go down. Right. So we're forced to become extremely creative. And there's one thing that I know about the restaurant industry where we're highly adaptable. You know, we have to kind of play within this game where we have to be unwavering on all of our standards and then be completely adaptable minute to minute from everyone's demands and everybody literally expects perfection. There's also this extreme lack of communication as to like what what the timeline they're looking at and what what will be the standards for you to be open 100%. The same thing with the comedy store. The comedy store has no idea when they're going to be able to be open because restaurants are open and they're saying, well, aren't we kind of like a restaurant? We serve food. And they're like, yeah, but no one goes to you specifically for food. Even though they're sitting down, you Hmm. can't be open. And they're like, but it's not a nightclub, meaning like a bar where everybody just mingles. There's seats. Like, isn't that okay? And they're like, no, we don't think so. We don't know. (laughs) Well, but nobody knows. But nobody knows. Anything, you know, that's what right. we have yeah. complete lack of trust, yeah. um, you know, in everything and, you know, politics and how the pandemic has been handled and also handling the businesses mandating, you know, overnight that we close our doors and go yeah. to zero revenue. But there's no mandates on how we operate with zero revenue, right. you know, moving forward. How do we what do we say to our landlords who deserve to be paid? Uh, so, but nobody knows anything. And right now, with opening, you know, the the health department, the it's a 17-page document on how you are supposed to open in a safe way. What do they tell you have to do? Oh my god! Well, 17 pages. Did you want <laughs> page one? Let's start. Page it's, I one. mean, we'll start at page one. At the very basis of it, you know, there's there's got to be an employee log. We have to take the te- the temperature of all of our employees when they actually enter the premises, and we have to have a log on that. Anyone who has direct contact with uh, customers have to wear a face mask and a face shield. A shield? 100%. And then on the client side, you have to wear a mask when you're not eating. So that means if you get up to go to the bathroom in the restaurant, you have to put your mask on. Oh, God. And then take it off when you get back to the table. That's so dumb. It doesn't make any sense. It it doesn't make any sense. And a lot of it is like completely ambiguous. Well, why would you have to wear a face mask if you already have a shield over your face? Right? Well, I think there's there's been some reports <laughs> I have so that you, many questions. You, you can get it through your eyes. Yeah. But you, there's been reports that you get it from touching things and now they say you can't. I know, but they they're just you know, they're saying everything, they're saying anything. Yeah. And you know, it's really um, it's on the honor system. You don't have to do anything in a restaurant. Really? Yeah. Not Dude, the wording this. is like, consider training your employees to do this. How about consider, consider this? Consider uh, that. Like, let people take chances. Let them if they want to come. Let them. People want to be able to go to a restaurant, just sit down and actually eat. You I know? have friends who drove to Santa Barbara to go sit down yeah, in a restaurant. I would do it. You know? Yeah, it'd be exciting. Uh, look, we, we <laughs> flew to Texas last weekend to look at houses and stuff, but we went to eat. We ate at this place called the Lonesome Dove. Oh, it's fantastic. We ate like regular people, sat down, <laughs> ordered wine, Imagine. the whole deal. It was amazing. But were you like, were the tables separated? Yes. They were less less than full capacity. The waiters all wore face shields. The people that greeted you at the door wore, wore not face shields, they wore masks. Um, the people that greeted you at the door wore masks as well. You know, but it wasn't that bad. 
It was great. It was just nice to be able to go to a restaurant. Yeah, I think, you know, people are dying to get out, and we're going to see a lot of people that are going to just, you know, run to restaurants, sit down in restaurants. But, you know, there was a poll taken. I know you love polls. Love them. I, <laughs> I know you're like, who, who, who fuck takes polls? polls? You get the the opinions of morons. That's what polls okay, are. So most the, morons the, think. The, most morons think that six out of ten Americans will not feel comfortable um you know, sitting in a restaurant. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure how I comfortable I would even feel sitting indoors where you come in, in with a mask, but then you're going to eat, you take your mask off, yeah. and then, you know, Joe Blow two tables over coughs, and then you're sitting indoors. W- whenever you're inside, you feel like you're in a Petri dish. Yeah. Well, it's been that way forever and ever. I mean, just think about my, my dishwashers, okay? In the guidelines, those guys basically have to be in hazmat suits. They have to have full protection, face shields, and mask, and then have like, you know, what what uh, the equivalent of like a painter suit, essentially. Because I get it; those guys are spraying down people's spit, right? Like all day, eight hours a day. So I get it for them, but it's always been a disgusting job. Seventy percent of being a chef is cleaning. Cleaning, whether yeah. it's cleaning vegetables or cleaning up after people or whatever, like it's cleaning. So this this business has always been disgusting. And if you don't love this business to the core, it's fucking terrible. Well, let's talk nice things. Let's talk. Let's talk about <laughs> the, what you guys have put together is pretty remarkable. Cause Thank you. The food there is so good. It's kind. Of, it's kind of ridiculous. Like your pasta's got voodoo in it. I don't know what you're doing. It is and voodoo. I, I guess it's because it's handmade, right? Because uh, one, the first time my wife and I ate there, we sat right next to that open area where you can watch. Yeah. You guys make the, the pasta, and it's uh, such a painstaking process. And you you realize you really truly appreciate that it's an art form. You know, that like making stuff like that, like cutting no corners and making it as good as it could possibly taste. Well, that I mean, that's the ultimate goal is to create that connection between pasta maker and someone who's eating the pasta. Like if you look through the glass and you see a pastayo or pastaya in there. What, what's the out. difference? A pastayo? And pastayo a, is, is male. Gender pastaya neutral? Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, you know, they're banging out trofie, which is like a coil from Luguria. And you look down at your plate and there's like 160 to 180 pieces in your plate. You're like, fuck. This, this guy's is this repping. From your, is, yeah. He's got pictures of This it. guy's doing 180 reps just for me. Mm. That's a connection. And once you get it, sometimes a bowl of pasta is a bowl of pasta. I get it. But this is something different. It, this, is, this is craft. This is tradition. This is continuing this conversation of that's been passed down from generation to generation uh and all i'm doing all we're doing at, at felix is just a small spoke in a in a, in a massive wheel of, of italian culinary tradition well you know just exactly how long to cook it too which is amazing like that because i'm the fucking bite. maniacal Joe. i get it man you must be <laughs> Because the just the way your teeth sink into it, it's like everything is amazing. I like to call it toothsome. Mm. Al dente. That's what al dente means yeah. to the tooth. Is that what it means? Al oh, dente. dente. Dental. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Toothsome. 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 Ha- so that's part of the experience, right? Is the right amount of chew. Just right a, amount of chew. Oh, and each so pasta. <laughs> each pasta's cooked region specific, because they cook pasta very different. In Naples versus Rome versus Bologna what is versus the Sardinia. It's just preference. It's mm-hmm. based on tradition. And the thing is this. Authenticity is very personal, 
right? Your mom makes macaroni and cheese with Velveeta. My mom makes macaroni and cheese with Tillamook cheddar. That shit's authentic to me. It may not be authentic to you. Italy's no different. But the differences and the diversity are so specific, not only per region, but town and then house to house. And it's, it's been that way for thousands of years. That's why I think Italian food next to Chinese food is the most diverse there is. Mm. And you could literally study your whole life and not even scratch the surface. Wow. Now, you guys have been open for what, two years? Three years. Three years? In April, yeah. How much prep time is there before you open? Like when you have a plan and, and Janet, you've opened up how many restaurants? You're a ton. Nine restaurants yeah. and four under construction. Great time to be under construction <laughs> in the restaurant business. <laughs> so crazy. Um, My life sucks. <laughs> Hashtag. It could be a lot worse. No, it, yeah. When, You're right. <laughs> when you are about to open up a place like Felix, and how, how, do you, how do you get started? Did you know Evan in advance? Did you guys talk before? Like, how do you, how do you put together a restaurant like that? Well, each restaurant that I've opened um, d- definitely has a different story. So I have a few Italian restaurants. I have... Thai restaurants. I have a Jamaican restaurant in Toronto. So, you know, all very different stories. But I wanted to uh, basically expand outside of Toronto. And I came to LA for lifestyle reasons to get out of the uh, Toronto winters and decided, you know, this will be my first place that I open a restaurant outside of uh, Toronto. And I had a dream of being on Abikini. I just love Abikini. Um, it feels like one of the only streets in Los Angeles where it's, um, you know, like a neighborhood and a street that you can walk down. So luckily, luckily, luckily I, you know, found this location on Abikini. And it's a long story, but I was working with another chef for about nine months. And then at the 11th hour, I had the location. We were all set to begin construction. And he just said, I'm going to I've decided to go work with another restaurant group. And I was like overnight, just like left without a chef. And I only had one other name of another chef in L.A., and it was Evan Funky. And um, a food writer just sent me an email because I was just out meeting people saying, hey, I'm looking for a chef that has a following, a super talented chef. And this one, um, Kevin West, shout out to Kevin West, sent me an email and said, Evan Funky is an amazingly talented chef and he's available. And so when this other chef bailed on me, and I was um, on vacation at that time, I was in Morocco of all places, and uh, I, you know, I asked for a week off to not to go off the grid for a week. And then uh, the president of my company contacted me. She said, "You got to get on the phone. We don't have a chef." And uh, <laughs> and so I go, I have one name in my Rolodex. It's Evan Funky, and I sent Evan. Uh, I felt that I had to send him a compelling. Uh, emailed so that I could get his attention because I had no other, um, you know, options. And I said, you know, Evan, I hear, you know, Kevin West says you're an amazingly talented chef. I have a location on Abikini, which is great. Like, you know, chefs love um, Abikini. You know, it's a, it's a great street. It's big leagues. And um, I said, you know, time is of the essence. If you're interested, you know, here's, you know, check me out. I'm, I'm legitimate, a restaurateur. Check me out. And, um, you know, we were on a FaceTime call that dropped a thousand times because of the yeah. bad reception. I'm like, bear with me. Like, get back on a FaceTime call with Evan. And I flew Evan to Toronto. I think it was Skype, actually. Oh, was it Skype? Yeah. Um, but I flew Evan to Toronto to cook for myself and my team immediately after this uh, vacation that I had. And Evan did just very few items. A lot of times chefs want to just like, wow you. I'm doing 22 dishes because I want to show you who I am. 
Evan did just, you know, he just did his cacio e pepe pasta. He did his focaccia bread. He just did very few items because he's confident and he knows. And I ate his food. My team ate his food. I said to Evan, food cannot taste better. And I also described his food as casalinga. So I lived in Italy for eight years. My background, I'm, I'm half Italian. I lived in Italy for eight years. My father basically was at the level of a chef, his cooking. And um, so I said to Evan, I said, your cooking is casalinga, which means like the housewife's cooking, like the mama's cooking. Mm. And Evan always describes his cooking like that casalinga, but not many people describe cooking in that way. And so basically, I think Evan felt that I got him. And then he just turned to me and he said, you've got a deal. We're partners. Wow. I was in Chicago at the time uh, consulting for Rich Melman, Let Us Entertain You. And um, I was kind of like on hiatus relearning the business. We'll probably get into that later. But uh, yeah, I got an email from Janet and I was like, all right, let's go do this. And that was it. I cooked. I think I cooked four pastas. And so for you, like that's a is it a rare thing to get an offer to run a restaurant, or did, is there offers that you get that no. you turn down? I mean, at the time it was rare. Um, now I get offers all the time. Mm. Once Felix opened, yes. Yeah. 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 Well, you guys nailed it. It's it's crazy. It, uh, you know, I learned from Bourdain, um, from watching his show, uh, No Reservations, the first show. I was like, oh, okay. I have a wrong idea of what food is like i had this idea that food just tastes good like you go someplace food tastes good Mm. but then watching his love of food and watching his deep respect for chefs and and the the preparation and all that's involved in making a dish i was like oh it's art i didn't of course it's art i didn't think of it as art i thought of it as just food you know and then Watching his show completely changed my perception of what food is. Yeah, not not every not every chef operates from being an artist, and there's different levels of food. Um, I do have to say, you know, Evan is an absolute master. You know, he's Evan's obviously not Italian, um, but has studied all over Italy, and it's the, really the dying art of handmade pasta, and. Evan is a custodian of keeping this art alive. Like uh, he's a maestro. He's unbelievable. Is there a specific type of flour that you use? Uh, we import six different types from four different regions. And now, is the 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 word about pasta and about bread and wheat in general is that American wheat is a different kind of wheat? It's, it's a different kind of wheat. It's also processed completely different. I don't I don't use a lot of American wheat just because it's. It's just been manipulated so much. And a lot of the, the digestibility of, uh, in my opinion, people are going to freak out. But in my opinion, the amount of work that goes into denaturing pasta in order to get it flat via machine has a lot to do with its digestibility. Mm. Just like sourdough bread is more digestible because it's broken down in a different way. The handmade pasta is less manipulated than machine-made pasta, mm. in my opinion. So um, also the the types of wheat, the amount of wheat germ that's in it, the nutritional value, it all has to do uh, with those elements within the, in the flour. And to be honest, like I've developed a, uh, a gluten intolerance because I've been breathing raw flour for the past, you know, 12 years. Oh, so really? As soon as I step, in, step foot in the lab and I start rolling a sfoglia, my stomachs just start, it's acid, straight up. That's crazy, just I've been from the breathing powder. Raw, yeah. Wow. Because it's like talcum, you know, double zero mm-hmm. flour is extremely fine. So we have to throw it in order to, you know, 
put some on the table to roll it out. So you breathe it in all day long. That's and we've got developed. extractors. We've got, you know, humidity control and air conditioning and all that, but still. But so you've developed an intolerance because yeah, of it's that? Yeah, it's, it's called white lung or baker's lung. Baker's lung. Yeah. So do you wear a mask? Uh, I do not. Why don't you wear a mask? Um, I don't know. Suck it up. <laughs> like, like when the, I don't know. I, I, you know. Seems like that would be a good thing to do. Sure. But you don't want that baker's lung? I'm, right? I don't, I, I don't like masks. Oh, okay. This whole You'd experience is, this whole experience is very has been very enlightening mm. wearing a mask. Right. Yeah, it's you gross. Know, I have another friend who also has a, a Kozuku Kawamura who is uh instrumental in my kind of understanding of uh of modern pasta. I met him in Bologna, he's a Japanese guy who has a, a lab in Tokyo called uh Base and he has the same thing. He wears a mask all the time because he's just breathing in raw flour all day. I never would have thought of that, but it makes total sense. I never thought oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean fucking flour. It's like a guy works at a, a paint shop. Like you're gonna get sick. You gotta get one of the painter things. <laughs> the big <laughs> tubes. That'd be so weird. People be like, I'm not eating that fucking pasta. I don't know. For me, it's part, of, it's part of the experience. It's crazy. What's now? in there? It's preservatives, oh, man. Yeah. Well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. We Whether will. it's the white lung, whatever you got to <laughs> clean that shit whatever out. It I don't takes. know what you can do to get Can't that stop, won't stop. Baker's flour lung, out of you. Just keep going. Yeah, it's just the pasta is insane. It's so good. It's And it's such a – when you have really good pasta and then you have pasta that maybe you enjoyed before, you had the really good pasta, it's mm. like – it's really, no, it, it's like having water in your ear. Like it you fucks think people up. Yeah, it fucks people up. It does. I'm sure. <laughs> I've, like, I cannot tell you how many people DM me or come to me in the restaurant and they say, you've completely fucking ruined me. Thank yeah. you so much. Now I can't eat pasta anywhere else. And I don't eat pasta in North America whatsoever. I don't eat fresh pasta in North America. I only eat pasta in Italy. I eat dried pasta in America, but I don't eat fresh pasta in Italy. Why not? Mm. Most people don't know what they're doing. But there's got to be some people other than you no, guys. No, certainly. Absolutely. Like, what are good spots? Like, if I you're think in Missy LA. Robbins is, is exceptional. Where's I that? Think, uh, New it's York in New City. York. Oh, Brooklyn. Oh, Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Damn, Missy's we got to go great. all the way to Brooklyn? <laughs> um, you know, Rob Gentile in Toronto is great. So um, there's a very small amount of people that are doing it I mean, right. there's, there's a handful of people who make pasta by hand, period. And mm. even fewer people who know how to make pasta with the mozzarella, which is the long rolling pin. Mm. Even fewer. And when I started, I started doing this 11 years ago. There was nobody. There was nobody. I checked. You know, I moved to Bologna in 2007, tail end of 2007, and started this journey with uh, my maestra, Alessandra Spizni, of La Vecchia Scuola Bolognese. And she kind of opened up the door for me to start seeking out other pasta makers throughout Italy. When I came back in 08, I ran a restaurant called Rustic Canyon for about four years. And, you know, not a lot of people were serving the style of pasta that I wanted to serve. So I started giving it away like a gateway drug. I would just like send it to tables for free. And they were like, what the fuck? And it just started gaining momentum and gaining momentum. Wow. So so when you moved to Italy to, to learn how to do it, like what, what is an apprenticeship like in you know, learning how to make pasta. I mean, it's an apprenticeship. You have to put yourself in the in the student's chair and and be a sponge. I didn't speak any, not a lick of Italian, um, but the Italians are very expressive. So you're able to communicate through just being Italian, I guess. And um, I spent three months, you know, six days a week, 
10 hours a day just making pasta. Period. Wow. Period. See, this is what's fascinating to me. Things you just you, know, you just take for granted. Oh, here is a plate of pasta. Like, but what what is involved in learning how to make it that good? It's not just ingredients. When people sit down at a at a restaurant, people aren't just paying for for the experience of sitting there and the cost of food. They're they're paying for the experience of the people that are making the food. Mm. That's a big part of it. That's the way that I look at it. And eleven years of making pasta by hand, there's a lot of depth that some of the younger guys just aren't willing to pay the time cost. Mm. And a lot of the younger cooks out there, they bounce around from job to job, six months here, three months here, and they think that they've mastered it. But there's just no depth. There's no depth. You know, you have to also consider how labor intensive it is to, you know, hand roll out the pasta. And, you know, what Evan was saying before, like each one rolled by hand, you know, when you, when you eat a bowl of pasta, you're not thinking that each one was like pressed out by hand. So it's like extremely labor intensive. And a lot of people, when we were opening, um, Evan did have his own restaurant, Bucato, before, which was also um, a, basically focused around pasta as well. That's a whole other story. Um, but when we were going to open up this restaurant and we put in the middle of the restaurant the temperature-controlled pasta lab, which is taking up tables. So if you're a business person, a restaurateur, you say, how many tables could fit in there? How much is each table worth to your, your bottom line? You're using up that space yeah. to yeah, put in – you're using that space to put in a pasta lab. Are you crazy? Um, also, you know, when you're thinking about – you know, training the people and how labor intensive it is. People were saying, like, we're, we're crazy doing doing this again. Yeah, they didn't think we could make money. Yeah. Well, it is a lot of space. That it's pasta lab space. is a big space. But it's so cool to be sitting right there. It's a showstopper. Yeah, it really, it's it's something special. And the it's worked thing. out. We're making money. I mean, we were <laughs> we making were. money. <laughs> <laughs> There's always, like, pre-COVID and... You know, and there's no thought. There's no guidelines in, in terms of like when you'll be able to operate at 100 percent capacity. No, I mean in the documents it say it says they're going to reassess in 21 days. So I don't know when that's going to be in a, in a uh, couple weeks. They might. It might even be quicker than that, right? I think the be. economic pressures are probably what forced them to open without letting anybody uh, they're know. They're out of money. Everyone's out of money. Well, that's out of money. Yeah, they can't yeah. just say, you know, there is a balance between people's health and the economy, and they can't just shut everything down and say, well, we're just going to print a bunch of money. We're all going to be paying for this in the end, right? Right now, it's been $2 trillion, and, you know, because of COVID. Uh, they have to get us back up and running and working. And I, I've said from the very beginning, get your young and your healthy back out and working. And if you're over the age of 65 or if you have underlying health conditions, then you should definitely stay at home. Yes. And you have to wait for either a treatment or the vaccine. Um, but, you know, they have to open up the, the economy. And it's been ridiculous how it's been handled. Yeah, that's what should have been done. It should have been they, – they should have – I mean, instead of taking this blanket approach. But I think there was a lot of misconceptions. They thought it was going to be something different than it was. Um, even at 60 percent, though, at least at 60 percent. I'm, like, happy you're going to be able to be – and you, when are you guys going to open up? Monday? Have you figured it out? Well, well then we – the the Well, the protest, yeah. and we had to board yeah. up and – uh, you know, I think we're probably another week or so away. At least. It's really about getting staff back in. That That's our kind of So once the protests hurdle. die down, then a week? Maybe a little yeah. more. Maybe yeah. a little more. Maybe a little more. We, but we, even we, with the 60% capacity, it, it's it, we will see if we'll be able to, to maintain, 
you know, and actually not necessarily make a profit, just Stay break open. even. Yeah, I think yeah. I think the the goal has always been when this first started uh, was you know your your goal is to to survive yeah. and to get to the other side of this. You're not you're not thinking about making money. And when you see these like iconic legendary restaurateurs like Daniel Hume with 11 Madison Park, which last year was the number one restaurant in the world, and he does not think that he will be reopening. So he might be closing permanently. Or David Chang closing two restaurants, one in New York City, one in D.C., and then he's moving another restaurant, consolidating his company, essentially. And when you, So when you see these iconic restaurateurs that are struggling to make it to the other side, it's like extremely sobering. Yeah. And you know, some some experts will say they think 50% of restaurants will not make it to the other side. I don't agree, but I think 25% won't make it. And even in L.A., one of my last dinners was at um, Bon Temps in downtown L.A., Lincoln Carson, yeah. an amazing chef. I was blown away by the restaurant, and he's closed permanently. Like, all that time to open, all that capital to open, you know, you train whatever you're training, 50, 75 people to open and he's closed permanently. Or Auburn, another restaurant that was getting, you know, great accolades, closed also permanently. They just got um, a finalist in the Global Design Awards. So they're getting these awards um, and they're closed permanently. And, and, you know, so, uh, you know, it's really survival of the fittest right now. So Mm. new restaurants... Because it's so hard, this business, you're very vulnerable when you're a new restaurant and you just have debt. You're just looking at a bunch of debt and then you're closed permanently. You know, you're going to you're not going to make it to the other side. And if a business was not making that much money. So when you see a restaurant in New York City like Lucky Strike that's been there for 31 years, closed permanently because, you know, it just wasn't doing that well. So all the businesses that were just kind of teetering on not doing very well, they're going to close. It's survival of the fittest, even with the pandemic and hitting older people. It's kind of like all around in business. Um, it's it's survival of the fittest. Mm. It seems like it's it's so hard to believe that if you don't make money for three months, it goes under. You would think like, oh, this is a successful business. Like, it's exposed people to the realities of running a business and how incredibly difficult it is to just to stay open. It's a juggling act, especially for restaurants, right? L- especially. No, th- this is what um, what I was saying before is the pandemic really exposed the restaurant business, and the restaurant business probably has been hit the hardest. And then next, all small businesses and retail, and then we're going to see commercial real estate really be affected right now. But the restaurant business, the national average of the profit margin is four percent. Mm. That's a national average. We don't we don't operate that way. Uh, we we operate um, we operate at fourteen percent essentially. Uh, but twenty years ago in the U.S., most restaurants would make twenty twenty five percent. You know the net profit margin, but it's gone down. It's gone down, and really, uh, the business is broken. The, the restaurant business is broken. We should be charging a lot higher prices, but then you're not going to get the customers. So what you do is you just accept a lower and a lower profit mm-hmm. margin. That's why this business is so difficult. And even 10 years ago, you might have a, a runway in your bank account to survive a few months. But most restaurants, you know, without, they have a month and then they're done. They've got nothing in the bank account. <sighs> It's a horrible business. Nobody should be in a restaurant. <laughs> Unless you're crazy and you're so passionate about it. That's you. That's me. It's both of us. But, uh, but I will, it's all of us. But 11 I, million of us. Yeah. yeah. Well, 11, 11 million of us. And then you think, you know, and when you look at the supply chain, so we, 
the restaurant restaurants employ 11 million people in the United States, but then when you add in the supply chain of the farmers and the winemakers and the linen cleaners and you know, we, we employ 20 million people, and we're the second largest employer in the United States next to the Pentagon. So, you know, right now we have to think. Wow, that's crazy. Restaurants are the second largest employer, and the Pentagon's the first? Yeah. How creepy is it the look Pentagon's it the first? <laughs> Jamie, Jamie, look it up. Fact I don't think, like, Amazon would be ahead of the Pentagon. What the fuck? No, that's, that's a nutty Pentagon, number. Pentagon, number makes... one employer, restaurants, um, Number two. That's so insane that Pentagon's number one. I would have never guessed that in a million years. If you gave me a multiple choice, I'd be like, fucking Pentagon. No way. Jamie's uh, typing away. Oh, I'm so. sure it's right. I mean, you don't have to even <laughs> no, look I don't it know. up, I Jamie. Mean, I believe her. Who knows? Like, <clears throat> I just read things, but um, you know, but, that's what we're talking about in the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And you know, we're working together with the government to ask for a certain amount of, of help, right? We need, yeah. the, we need the right help. Or, we, you know, when people think, you know, screw you, restaurants, like, we're all, we're all in trouble, right, with 40, plus, 40 million plus, now it's like, I think, 42 million um, filed for unemployment. A lot of people are hurting right now. So it's hard to say, you know, romanticize restaurants right now, come back and support your local restaurants when mm. a lot of people are hurting. But I think if we think about the economic domino effect right now of essentially 20 million people, we, like, we've got, we need help to stay in business and not close down permanently. I think the the economic um, effect right now will be staggering. Yeah, no, it, it's it's something to consider when you think about what you said about the people that clean the linen, the people that make the wine, all the various people that rely on restaurants. You don't, you don't. It's not just restaurants. You don't. Re, most people like myself don't really consider that. You go, wow, they probably employ 10 people or 20 people or 50 people, whatever it is. But then you don't think of all the trickle down. It's a massive web, a massive mm. web. Do, do you see like the, the farmers obviously dumping, you know, tons of food and mm. 36 million gallons of milk? And nobody knew that restaurants are the number one purchasers from farmers, that and institutions, schools, mm. institutions and restaurants. And they process the food in a different way for restaurants than they do. They, they, you can't just say, like, get the food, you know, out there. They process food differently uh, for individuals and grocery stores as they do institutions and restaurants. So they have to dump all this food. Now, when you guys get up and running, how do you calculate how much food you buy? Like, I've, that's always, I've always been like, how do they know? Like, how do they know how <laughs> many people voodoo. are coming voodoo. in? Voodoo. The, cool, the one good thing about the restaurant business is that <laughs> the metrics... The metrics, whether you have five tables or 100 tables, are the same. It's all math. And if I knew how much fucking math that I'd be doing right now, I'm 40 years old. If I knew when I was like a kid, I would have studied the fuck out of math because I had to learn on the fly. So Restaurant you as is, a chef are not just responsible for putting together the meals, but you that's also... not enough anymore. Not enough. No. you got to be a businessman. You have to be a marketer. You've got to be a diplomat. You have to be a father. You have to... Oh give advice, you know, like that. I'm not having kids, but I have 60 kids because I exercise my fatherly duties on a daily fucking basis. I've bailed guys out of jail. I've given, you know, beer money to guys. Like it is a true, true, true family. And mm. you spend, you know, the majority of your day with these people. You feel that when you go into your restaurant, though. There's something about that place. Like there's... You, the, when the waiters deliver your food, 
you, you know that they know it's special. Like there's a feeling like when they put that down, like, hey, you go look at that. And you're like, whoa. And they're like, uh-huh. Yeah. It's by design. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, by design. You can tell. You can tell. By design. The, the, the fish stinks from the head down. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> we yeah. love that. It's a Jamaican saying, the fish rots from the head down. So, Janet, we were talking on the phone about what it's like for you to have all these restaurants under construction and you were this unstoppable machine. You were a restaurant machine. Everything was kicking ass. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. Well, um, you know, the, the only thing I've ever done has been in the restaurant business and out of university. I came from Italy and I opened my first restaurant in Toronto and slowly right got out of school. Well, I was older. I, I took my time in school, too. <laughs> I started when I was I started university when I was 22. So I took my time. But um, when I opened my first restaurant, I definitely connected to a passion and I had this slow root of growing this company. So that restaurant opened 24 years ago and is still running, uh, you know, still running today. That's incredible. What are the odds of that? Well, the average, um, you know, after you pass a year, you know, you have a lifespan, most restaurants of seven years. Yeah. So I've had a few lifetimes with that restaurant. And then I slowly saved my money and wanted to buy the real estate where that, where that restaurant is. It's in Yorkville. Do you know Toronto? You know Toronto. Do you know Yorkville? No, I don't. It's a nice little neighborhood in Toronto, and I wanted to buy this real estate, so I saved my money to buy the real estate. So I was I was very um, cautious uh, of growing the company and building a foundation. And then I, I bought one piece of real estate, then I bought another building, and then I put a, another restaurant twice as big as my first restaurant, and then I bought another building. So I've been buying these buildings and putting restaurants inside the buildings until I felt that my foundation was so strong that nothing could happen to me. So... I could only put through the lens back then in the, you know, before the pandemic to say in an economic upturn, people will eat pizza. On an economic downturn, people will eat pizza. I'm untouchable. That's how I felt. I felt nothing could touch me. And then we opened up Felix and Felix has gotten, you know, incredible accolades, you know, in the press and rightfully so. And Evan's cooking is off the charts. And um, uh, I thought, you know, we're ready to really grow. So let's let's do this. And I built uh, a company where, you know, I have a head office. It's a proper company. And uh, I have an incredible team of people. And I felt very ready and very stable and with an incredible, incredibly um, strong foundation that I said, we're ready to do this. And so 2020 was my big year to open five restaurants in one year. Wow. So I just I, – I just, uh, just before the pandemic, flew to Toronto to open um, a 9,000-square-foot restaurant to immediately close it. And that cost $9 million to open this 9,000-square-foot restaurant that opened one day, trained 100 people for two months, and then immediately shut that down. Shut down all restaurants, so shut down eight operations. And I also have a catering company, so shut down eight, eight operations in Toronto and a catering company, furloughed 700 people. And then I have four other projects under construction and personally all of the money in the company out on construction sites. Plus, oh. I personally loaned all of my money to build the restaurants because that's what, that's what I do. What mm-hmm. I do is I, I, buy, I buy buildings and then I get mortgages on the buildings. Then I use all the cash that I have anywhere that I, that I can find it to open restaurants. So I might have a temporary you know, uh, lack of cash, but then – you know, backed by a very strong revenue. So I'm funding all the construction sites by all these restaurants that have extremely strong um, streams of revenue. 
So once again, it, I didn't feel like I was um, taking a big risk opening five restaurants in 2020. So I swear to you that the, the day the pandemic happened, I had to shut down. It was literally the day before I loaned out. I wrote a massive check for one construction site, like all of my money in my bank account, you know, out to one construction site. Then we shut everything down. And it was like I was I was kicked in the teeth, like I was brought to my knees. And I had never felt stress like that because of how conservative I am and how fiscally responsible that I've always been and feeling that I was untouchable. I just thought, um, you know, nothing could ever happen to me in this. You know, I could never risk anything. But I woke up one day when I had to close everything down. And first of all, the feeling of laying off 700 people when you know the majority of your staff live paycheck to paycheck uh, was absolutely heartbreaking. And that I, I ran the real risk of losing everything, not only all the restaurants, but all the buildings, because the bank, you know, owns my buildings. I don't own the buildings. And you know, this pandemic caught me with my financial pants down. Like, I just was like, oh, my God, this is really bad timing for me. Do you think if there's a second wave, they're going to try to do this again? Shut you down? No, I think we're going to look the protest. Do you think we're going to have a second wave now? We very well could. I mean, we, we these are. people are not social distancing. They're on no. top of each other. If anybody's got it, everybody's got no, it. I, I don't I actually don't think so. And I think that we have, we're going to be living with this virus. And I've said this from day one. When this happened, I said to my team, give me the two-year plan. What's going on for two years? We have to live with this for the next two years. And I think that we just have to live in a safe way. And yeah, wear the masks out. And we're going to go to restaurants. And people are going to be wearing gloves and masks. And maybe take your temperature. And we're going to you know, be seated six feet apart. Um, I think this is, we're going to just find a safe way to live. But of course, there's going to be, there's going to be a second wave and a third wave. It's going to keep going until... But also when a vaccine comes, you, you, have to, you have to inoculate, you know, between 60 and 80 percent of the world. How long is that going to take? Mm. We're, we're living with this. Yeah. The, the, the vaccine's a weird vaccine, too. You, do you understand what it is? An mRNA vaccine? Well, that's one vaccine that Moderna is making, mm -hmm. but there's different types of vaccines that they're making. Yeah, there's multiple trials that are going on right now, right? A hundred yeah. different vaccines. The Everybody's trying to get out. Health officials, no new COVID-19 cases from Missouri parties. <laughs> <laughs> no additional new. Well, you know, um, what's interesting is what we were talking about before the podcast, when you guys were getting tested for the COVID, uh, we were talking about Italy, how Italy yeah. has the, the detectable levels are so small. They're so minuscule. Infinitesimal. I just learned Ooh, that you word. You nailed it. Yeah, you got it. There was a struggle earlier. <laughs> the, yeah, I know. The, um, the viral load is infinitesimal. Well, sometimes when you read things and you don't say it out loud, and all yeah. of a sudden you say it out loud for the first time, right. you're like, I don't know how to say that word. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of words like um, that that I never use. Yeah. But um, yeah, in San Raffaele uh, Hospital in Milan, you know, they're saying that the, the virus is, no longer exists in Italy. It's, that's so crazy. So it just burned through the population. Well, yeah. Hopefully, that's what's happening here. Hopefully. You know, hopefully. Hopefully. And, you know, we're going to see in two weeks, right? Two weeks you're going to see what happened from all this protesting and everybody being on top of each other. Also, the stress of it all has got to be terrible for people's immune system as well. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I, I, like, are you, are you feeling, we were talking about it earlier. If you're, if you're a human being and you have any feelings at all, you're going to feel the stress of humanity right now. Yeah. You know, it's the stress of the world because in our lifetimes, we've never seen one of these events. But it's like we have the Spanish flu and the, the Great Depression and the 1968 riots happening all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I, I think bigger than the 68 riots. I don't think any riots sure. have ever been this widespread through the entire country. 
and the looting. Well, the Rodney King, I think they had they had a lot of deaths, right? I think they had. They had a lot deaths. of deaths in Los Angeles, but they didn't they didn't protest the Rodney King riots in Boston. You know, I mean, this is worldwide. This now. is worldwide. Yeah, it's and worldwide. The looting though seems to be only here. And the looting is just insane. Well, t- 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 in Toronto today, it's actually quite peaceful, but uh, they have you know, looting in Toronto. Well, they've um, supposedly tomorrow. There's some organized looting happening. Organized tomorrow. looting, June the sixth, so and you know, and these fun. piles of bricks are showing up um, around the city as well. Yeah, we were talking about that. Like that's that's so weird. Like big it's pallets bizarre. of bricks that are dropped off on areas like and no one really has any understanding of why there's uh, been a bunch of uh, articles written on it and they're trying to sort it out and some of them are just coincidence they, they were at construction sites and the bricks happen to be there and some of them there's no reason whatsoever for the bricks being yeah, there wouldn't you think as much as as every single building has a camera on it Yes. Wouldn't you be able to see who's dropping this shit off? Yeah. It's like, here's some rioting supplies. Right. <laughs> Have at it. Yeah. Well, the, the real fear is that it's the police. People are worried that the police are doing it, encouraging people to throw rocks. So if those people throw rocks, then the police can come in and break up what would have been a peaceful protest. That's through the actions of agent provocateurs mm. or just giving people rocks and, and encouraging them, you know, just by virtue of the fact the rocks are there. There was another thing that we talked about the other day. We, we should probably correct that now. There was stacks of bricks in front of this uh, synagogue, and we thought those stacks of bricks were also the same thing, sort of left there because people were protesting. But it's actually even grosser. The stacks of bricks were there to keep people from driving their car through the synagogue. Oh, my God. Oh God. So that's the synagogue set it up that way just to keep people from smashing through their windows You know, after some of these yeah. uh, hate crimes. So it's like this is a world almost, in pain. It's a fucking crazy time. I am a, I am an eternal optimist. And my feeling is that this is a terrible moment for us, but a good one because I think it's big enough that we're going to change. I, I think agree. we're going to learn 100%. Yeah. I There's agree. a real chance, a mm-hmm. real chance yeah. that people are going to change. Yes, I really think that. And you, you're seeing, like, there was a video I was watching today of a girl having an argument with her racist father, and she filmed it. Did you saw see that? that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff gives me hope. Like, a kid who's raised by someone who's got some racial prejudice, and the kid doesn't. You know, and the, kid, the, the, the attitude of kids today, the attitude of young people today, is so much more tolerant than any other generation before. And it's so enforced. It's a culturally enforced tolerance. And I hope it's for everything. I hope it's for all races, all genders, all sexual orientations, all everything. Everything. Just we can be better. We can be better. And, like, it takes something like this to make everybody realize, like, there's some fucked up aspects of our society. They need to be corrected. And there needs to be some serious refocusing of what it takes to be a police officer and what... What police officers can and can't do and what what the punishment is and who's responsible. And then if you're a cop and you see someone do something horrible that's also a cop, you got to step up. you got to do something. We can't we can't do this anymore. Yeah. Did you see Chris Rock's post from three days ago? There's some there's some vocations. You can't have a bad apple. He's like yeah. police yeah, officers. Yeah, yeah. Police officers are <laughs> one. You can't have a bad apple just like yeah. you can't have a bad apple as a pilot. Yes. You can't like some of our pilots like to land. Others like to yeah. go into mountains. We can't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can't have. This. Yeah, that's a. Great I mean that that you know I feel I'm also extremely hopeful. Even if I feel I, I feel 
you know, like I've been brought to my knees and I, I'm seeing other small businesses and friends of mine getting looted right now. And I'm like, it's also senseless. And I, and I feel for Black Lives Matters right now is like the most important thing. It, I, I didn't think anything could knock off the pandemic, but, you know, it has. Yeah. And we're all thinking about this, but I do feel that it's been an awakening. And I think that it's in our face like it's never been before. And I think what, what you were saying, to, to witness a man essentially be tortured yeah. is something we can't unsee. And right. it cha- I think it changes you forever. And what you were also saying is for this one man, you know, to reverberate like all over the world, really, mm-hmm. to see the protests all over the world is really something. But and I think we have to be super uncomfortable for change. And I think this is a moment. And I think that cop has been doing that shit since the beginning. He's he's been charged with mul- multiple time, multiple complaints since like 2006. And how crazy is it that one kid, a 17 year old girl films this? puts it out on the internet and it changes the world yeah. this one time he, imagine if he knew imagine if he had any inkling that leaning on that man's neck with his knee for eight and a half minutes or more even almost nine minutes that that was literally going to change the world i know it's it's unbelievable it's, it's, a, it's just, a strange it, it time. shows the 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 absolute fundamental core of law enforcement across the board is absolutely fucking rotten and you just need better training and we need People who are not fucking assholes, not yeah. racist pieces of shit going into law enforcement. It's also the job, I think, is almost impossible. Um, just from a, um, just a, just for your mind. I, d- I don't think people are supposed to be inundated with that kind of violence. No, man. They, they for sure have PTSD. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about it. Being on edge all day long, not knowing whether or not someone you're going to pull over is going to fucking kill you yep and just vice the versa of dead people they see the amount of bullet wounds and you know i have friends that are cops and they tell you horror stories every day it's a shotgun but so, but so can the surgeon and in, you yep. know the surgeon same thing. absolutely it, it's yep. really it's really the same thing so yep. a lot of uh, maybe maybe you know the reform has to be that uh, mental health has mm-hmm. to be looked after but there, there needs to be there, there needs to be a different way there needs to be reform there, has to be there a yeah there needs way. to be different training and yeah, it's not a job like, you know, you could be a garbage man. Okay, I'll show you how to do the garbage. No, it's like, who are you? Let's let's sit down. Mike, why do you want to be a cop? You know, like, it should be a really difficult thing to get a, a license to be a police officer. It should be the most difficult thing yeah. to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it should be the most difficult job to get. And it should be paid really well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. We have you know, the, you just look at all the systems and it's all broken. Like when we look at the restaurant business, it's actually a broken business. Our, our society is broken, and that we pay teachers hardly anything for doing such mm-hmm. an important job, and police officers, and people who are working, you know, at the, on the front lines. And you're mentioning that you know the kid that's stalking the shelves and he's putting himself in harm's way, making minimum wage. It's all just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, before it used to be just a job. Now you're risking your life. You know, if you work in a supermarket, it used to be, oh, you know, I got a good job stocking the shelves. Now it's like, oh, I could die from this. Like that wasn't on the menu when I first signed up for this. Yeah. Restaurant business is the same now. Mm. Yeah. Right. Now it really is. Because if people are serving people and people are coughing on them. Hmm. Vitamin D, kids. Get your vitamin D. <laughs> vitamin C. Make sure you take 5, your zinc. 5,000 I use, yeah. Get your body Get your healthy. Immunity. Yeah. But they don't, They again, I'll say they don't know, they still don't know enough about this virus. And, you know, every day yeah. you wake up and, 
you know, like, oh, uh, you know, your blood type. So I have blood type A, and that supposedly you'll have a rough time. You know, you have a higher chance of having a rough time needing oxygen um, if you have type blood, you know, blood type A. We're just, we're just we don't know enough. Right. About the virus. That's been like the most frustrating and and for me at least the most frustrating and the most depressing thing is the literal like hour to hour changes of everything. And making long term decisions is literally impossible. Mm. And in this business, you have to make long term decisions. You have to project in order to, to be successful. And that's what's been so difficult. Is that, you know, just the other day, there was a curfew. It was at 6. I was in the grocery store. It was curfews at 6. And then all of a sudden, oh, we changed it to 5. And then all of a sudden, everybody in the grocery store was working there. It was like, fuck, we have to close in 30 minutes. And they're like letting everybody who's in line outside in. Oh, God. And all of a sudden, it's packed. So all the social distancing for people it's waiting, like, they just the gave fuck? it up. It's not really that important. What's really important is get your food quick. It's just, it's been bananas. Now, when you, when you like, so you have to do all these calculations when you're you're figuring out how many meals you're going to serve, mm. how much food you're going to order, and you you have to kind of guess. Like, how do you do? You guess like how many people are going to order fish, how many people are going to order steak. It's kind of you get of you have pars obviously, but you get into this rhythm. And Felix, I'm a student of of consistency. And uh, I always have been. I learned it uh, at Spago. Spago is probably one of the most consistent restaurants in the entire country. Uh, And my mentor, Lee Hefter, kind of instilled in me those um, principles that define the way that I run restaurants now. So you have obviously have PARs, um, but you have to look at PMEX. You've got to look at what you're selling. You have to look at what people are enjoying, what people aren't buying. Um, and you really ultimately have to know you, your clientele. You have to get to know them very much so. And I think that that's a lot of what hospitality professionals are really missing is that connection to the people. Because that's the reason why we do this shit is to, to see you, Joe Rogan, eat the steak at table 33 and say, fuck, that was the fucking best steak I ever had in my family. It was life. the best steak I've ever had. Really was. Yeah, all this talk about pasta, but really when you came, you were on the carnivore diet. Well, that was the I was surprised you ordered pasta, time. dude. That you yeah. had come. Okay. When, I had, when we had dinner together with Brian Callen yes. and my buddy Alex Enchin, the four of us had dinner, and you were on the carnivore diet. Yeah, I was then, yeah. But even then, I mean, the steak was fantastic. All the food was fantastic. Um, but the second the, the time I went after that, right before you guys got shut down, my wife and I ate there. That like, was the last service, no? I think so. Yeah. That was the last, was the last and service. Yeah. I, I saw you there that night. That yeah. I had just flown in from Toronto, and that was my last time out. I think that was your last time out. That you, was you March snuck out out. 13th. Did you I, hear I, it? Out. Yeah. You, you outed I out. I outed, you Canadian. I, out, I outed myself. <laughs> you Canadian right there. Yeah, I had pasta that time. It's, it's sensational, but that's till this day is the best steak I've ever had. What are you doing different? What are you doing? How do you cook in steak? Salt. Talk black, to me. Don't salt, lie. Salt, black pepper. What's the voodoo? Hot fire. That's it. Violent. But it's fire. where it's where Violent the heat. Fire. where Violent the meat heat comes and from. And then rest. Really? I mean, you have to. You know, in my opinion, ninety percent of cooking is ingredients. Ten percent technique. Yeah. That's it. So just buy the best that you possibly can and try not to fuck it up. You need some some you know instruction you need some technique but a lot of people i think the 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 biggest ingredient that is missing in a lot of cooking today is restraint restraint 
Don't fucking manipulate it. Just let it do what it does. The farmers have taken great pains. The ranchers have taken great pains to get this product to where it is, to where it's ultimate, its peak of perfection, its peak of ripeness, its peak of marbling or whatever. Just put some salt and some black pepper on it and apply heat and then watch it. And you kind of have to have a, a little bit of an uh, internal calibration to understand what's going on. Do you use a timer? No. <laughs> All by feel. Sorry. Why are you laughing? I'll feel. Well, you can mock me. Go you ahead. can. No. We, I mean, it's listen, just funny. We, I, we use I just... scales. We use timers. But to cook meat, you have to, you have to do it a lot. Repetition mm -hmm. is the mother of all skill, whether that's pasta making or cooking on the grill. Do you use an internal, do you use any sort of a thermometer? At the beginning, I did, yeah. But now it's by feel. Mm. So it's just, you just, the, how it gives when yeah. you touch it? Yeah. And there's wow. things you can learn by touching, you know? Yeah. Like, that's medium rare. So if you use your pinky, yeah. your like ring finger, your middle thumb. finger, like this. Yeah. So this, 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 this. So this is rare. This is mid-rare. This is medium. And that's well. So this is what we're doing for people just listening, squeezing different parts of your hand where it's more firm. Yeah, right between the thumb and the index finger. What do you if, do if someone asks for a well-done steak? Do you tell them to go fuck themselves? <laughs> Probably um, should, huh? No, listen. I, I mean, if that's what they want out of the experience, some, listen. Sometimes people just want to yell at you, and that's what they want out of the experience at the restaurant. So you got to give it to them. That's part of hospitality. They got to take it. They want to complain. They you think some people are just incorrigible. Yeah, and you just have to say, "I hear you. Thank you so much for your feedback." Ugh. Do you really? I mean, internally, I'm fucking screaming. Right. Like, can I? I love cacio e pepe, but I hate black pepper. Say what? Like black pepper, pasta, pecorino romano. That's those are the three ingredients in it. Yeah, it's, it's a, the pasta is a vessel for the black pepper. Yeah, you how know? could you say that? Yeah, people do all the time, all the time. And they have to talk. You have to talk to these people. They say, "I'd like to speak to the chef." Oh no, I have people to buff, buffer me from that. Oh God, <laughs> I can only imagine. But still, in hospitality, I mean, you know. I, you know, we train our, our team to just, like, not make anything about you. And, you know, you just it, look and at someone and say maybe their mother died today. Yeah. And if you just – it's so easy to diffuse. And it's really a lot of psychology being applied to people where, you know, you people need to be heard and understood. And so you just let people vent. And, you know, there's ways to – um, kind of mimic mimic people's um, you know bodily movements and stuff to show that you've heard them, and so it's just really powerful to d diffuse that. And so in hospitality, you can't take anything personally. It's never about yeah. you. Nothing's ever about I do. you. I could only imagine. <laughs> Why could I, I used to, honestly like when I first started cooking professionally as as a chef, I used to read like the the Yelp reviews and whatnot. Oh no, I haven't oh. read I haven't read a Yelp review since two thousand and six. Joe's a big fan of reading all comments. Yeah, super important. No, you hear everybody. No. When you when you like I. I don't have kids, but so these restaurants, and I feel like I do have a lot of kids that work for me, but my restaurants feel like my babies. And then in the early days, I would read reviews and it would be like somebody saying, your baby's ugly, so ugly. Yeah. And right. you'd be like- It's crushing. No, yeah, yeah. it's crushing. It's crushing. So you, don't, you can't read. Especially yeah. for chefs, like chefs put their heart and soul onto the plate. You know, everything that I have inside of me goes under that plate. My history, my family, my heart, my soul, my emotion. Cooking is emotion. If you if you don't have emotion when you cook, then you're not doing it right. Yeah. And when you put it out there on the, on the public stage and people says, 
this isn't, this sucks. Fuck you, this sucks. This isn't authentic, blah, blah, blah. Cooking it, food is so personal to the person who's receiving it. And like we said, authenticity is very personal. So sometimes I just have to say, you know what? Felix is just not the restaurant for you, my friend. And we've fired customers before. So you don't let them come back? Yeah. Do you, we have do you have a photo of them, like a band <laughs> list? Or I think it's just, in, you know, I think if you, you're, you're in the business of pleasing everybody, you please nobody. Yeah. And sometimes you just, it's, you know, this is how it is, mm-hmm. and we're not going to change it. If somebody asks uh, for the cacio e pepe with less pepper, this is not the cacio, this is not the place where you should be having cacio e pepe. It's, right. Sometimes we just also do that to respect the art of, of Evan's cooking. Yeah, well, I think it's, what I was saying earlier is that it took me watching Bourdain's love for cuisine to understand what what food really is, what being a chef really is. I miss is. that fucking guy. Man. I miss that fucking guy too. But but I think yeah. many people don't ever have that experience where they do make that switch in their head, like, oh, this is art. This isn't just food, you know. And this, I think there's a lot of people that it's like everything else. You, if you don't do it, you don't really have an appreciation for mm. it. If you don't study it or or, or really d- deeply try to understand it. You don't have an appreciation for it. That's like everything else, like uh, like how kids treat society in general, how a lot of people just take things for granted. I think mm. people take food for granted. But I think there's been a lot of focus on food over the last, you know, maybe call it 10 years where yeah. you have the, the chef's table and people really mm-hmm. appreciating yeah. um, the art of cooking. When yes. I started cooking, that shit was a blue-collar job, man. Yeah. There were very, very few celebrity chefs. Like there was like Emeril and Mario when I started cooking and like – Overnight, it became like the hot shit to do. And all these culinary schools start opening and just meat grinder, just churning out these ill-prepared, uh, entitled kids. And you know, they, they sell them a bill of goods when, when they go to culinary school. You're like, you graduate from here, you're going to be a chef. What I didn't know, as soon as I got out of culinary school, I was making $7 a fucking hour. $7 an hour, you know peeling fucking carrots and potatoes and picking parsley and shit and like you really gotta love it to to get to that point and you gotta do it for 10 years to get good at it and then you gotta do it another 10 years to start making money from it and that's it and a lot of the younger kids they're just not willing to pay the fucking cost and they want to skip rungs in the ladder and that's the case with every art form. We find that with comedy, with stand-up comedy. There's a lot of kids that they they want to do stand-up, and they develop a YouTube channel, and then they get a following for making funny YouTube videos, and then they think they're a stand-up comic, and you're like, hold the fuck on. They're like, where's my Netflix special? Yeah, like, exactly. I demand it. Yeah, it takes. And with comedy and food, the proof is in the end result. Mm-hmm. It's either good or it's bad. You, you might be able to make one dish perfectly one time, but can you do that shit 10,000 times right. with 98% accuracy? Right. That's where, that's the rub. There's also a thing in, I think, in being a chef where, like you were talking about, making $7 an hour, peeling onions and stuff, that that's real similar to comedy in that you got to do the road. you do, you got to work these shitholes. And, and you might hate it while you're doing it, but one day you look back and go, oh, that was really important for my development. It's, it's pure and simple. It's foundation. Yeah. Just, you can't build anything without a strong foundation. Now, when you create your menu, how, how often do you change it? Um, at Felix, I think we we cook specifically with seasonality. So if the market changes, we change. And that's really how the Italians have cooked for thousands and thousands of years. You know, seasonality is a real buzzword 
in the U.S., but Italians have been cooking that way out of necessity for mm. thousands of years, and so have many other cultures. But I really take you know, my inspiration from tradition and try to pay homage to those culinary traditions in Italy. And I try to put as a, a minimal amount of ego and a minimal amount of manipulation towards the traditional product. And all I want to do is present whatever it is, whether it's cacio e pepe or tagliatella bolognese, the truest form that you can possibly get in the U.S., that's what I want to put forth. And if you take my bolognese, the inspiration from that, do you have the bolo at Felix? I'm sure I've had it, okay. yeah. That shit should taste like the streets of Bologna, the diesel fuel, cigarette smoke, really? the melting pork <laughs> fat. Wait a minute. Like that. Italy, <laughs> Italian food is so, Italian food is so, is so environmentally driven. Italian mm. food is so environmentally driven. And it's hard to accomplish that if you're in the ass end of fucking Culver City. Mm. So you have to coax out these nuances from products that are born in the place that you're trying to evoke. You know, like prosciutto di Parma or mortadella di Bologna. So, like, it needs to taste of that place. If you're sitting on the island of Capri and you're eating a caprese salad, drinking a glass of wine with, with the, the person that you love and the ocean breezes on your face, and then you eat a caprese salad at Joe Schmo's place in fucking Inglewood, it doesn't read the same way. Mm. And that's, that's really where the difference between good restaurants, bad restaurants, and great restaurants really lives. And what about the wine? Like, how do you know what wine to buy that's going to go with the meals that you're serving? Again, it goes down to regionality and someone who has a great palate. You know, our wine director, Matt Rogel, has done an exceptional job at, at choosing uh, wines that are specific to the regions that we're inspired by. Mm. And you got to taste it. And that's what I mean. That's the fun part. But like, you just have to taste everything. Taste it. And there's a lot of shit wine out there, but there's a lot of exceptional wine that is made uh, by very small family farms that uh, that uh, or sorry vintners uh, that this the allocation is so small that they barely have enough to send to the US mm. so does the wine director look at your menu and then say you know this is gonna require hundred percent it's, mm. it's totally it has to be collaborative you know so you'll show him the menu, and then you, you, you have a dialogue about, like, what kind of wine. Exactly. And, and then do you try it? Do you, like, make a dish and try the, the, the wine with that dish? And uh, We'll taste multiple wines, multiple wines. What could possibly go with whatever you're making? What are, if, it, if it's a new, uh, new dish or a new wine or it's the same menu and an old wine, a different vintage, a different area of the region where the wine is grown, like there's so many different elements to, to choosing wine. And then on top of it, training the staff to make suggestions to clientele like, hey, what do you really like? And that go it gets back to that conversation between us and the clientele. And knowing more about the, our clientele and who likes to come to Felix gives us better, you know, a better standpoint. How many suggest. of you people do you think are return customers? I would say at least 75 to 80%. Wow. Absolutely. That's crazy. So you recognize people? Of course. Wow. I never and thought I, of I that. I mean, you saw me. I stand at the pass. Yep. I'm, I'm in the dining room. Yeah. And I check every single plate coming out of the kitchen. Wow. You know, Your bread I, and butter is really your, your uh, return. 
returning customers in, in any restaurant. And you're going to have an element of people that come in because they're traveling from other parts of the world and they want to check out your restaurant. But, you know, imagine right now where traveling is really hit. So if you don't have your local customer base built up, um, then you're in trouble. Now, for someone like you that has so many restaurants and you have so many plates spinning, how do you not go crazy? Like, how do you how do you manage all that? I, I can't imagine the stress that's on your head, the, the weight that you're carrying on your shoulders running that many restaurants. Well, I have an amazing team, so it's not. I'm definitely not alone in this, and I have amazing people, and we're in this together. And I think I had a moment where I was brought to my knees. I felt stressed like I had never felt before. I, I was thinking, like, could I have an aneurysm right now? I was just feeling uncontrollable stress, you know, with the thought of just losing everything that I had built up. And my personality being so conservative, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. it was overwhelming. And then I gave myself, I just gave myself a few days to be that way and have, you know, that, that reaction. And, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm gritty and um, I just gave myself essentially a few days and then I picked myself up and I said, well, what are, what are we going to do? And I'm not alone in this. Everybody in my industry, we've, the industry has been decimated. And to know that we're in this together and to look at solutions where you have to adapt and innovate and renegotiate. So, you know, how are we going to create these other new revenue streams? And so I got back into working mode, working around the clock with my team. And a lot of my restaurants in Toronto, you can buy all of your groceries and essentials and just looking for other revenue streams to survive. Have any of them opened up in Toronto yet? Not for a sit down and we're behind uh, the U.S. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Well, because the um, the uh, the virus lagged in you know in the spread, uh, it started here, it started spreading in New York City before Toronto. So we were just uh, I think about three weeks behind um, everything happening here. So, and I think we're a little bit more conservative with um, reopening, mm. and we like you know it's all everyone's telling me they can't get the even the antibody test anywhere in Canada. So we're we're behind on these kind of things. So, so we don't know when we're going to be allowed to be open for seated, uh, to be seated, uh, you know, and I think the one good news, we're going into summer, and, um, a lot of my restaurants have a lot of patio space, and we know that you're safer outdoors obvious, yeah. for obvious reasons. And in with Felix, uh, we went to the landlord to ask if we could use the back uh, area space. There's like a little parquet, so we're going to use outdoor space behind the restaurant. Mm. And it's all about making people feel safe. People will come out if they feel safe. There's going to be your young customer base that doesn't care. But as more and more restaurants open, there's just gonna, it's going to be spread amongst fewer restaurants. So we're, we're not out of the woods here. We're not going to be, you know, and again, our goal is to survive this. Now, do you look at these new restaurants you're about to open? Do you put them on pause? Do you just continue ahead once you get the green light and just say, Let's make it happen. Well, each project, again, is, you know, is very different, and I have different amounts of money invested in each project. So what we're doing is negotiating around the clock with, uh, for example, if we have landlords in certain places, we're renegotiating the leases right now, and we're asking to put it on pause, put the entire project on pause till we come out of this, and I can start building the company again and, and have a, some revenue to put back into the projects. So some, some landlords have been um, unwilling uh, in the beginning, but now they're, they're more willing as they realize who can take my place. If somebody who I've got a, a very strong record, I've never closed a restaurant, and that's if, amazing. That's really amazing. Like, Thank you. Isn't it like... It's pretty what, amazing. It's oh, yeah, unicorn. it's amazing. What is the average restaurant, at, like, what percentage of... 80%. 80% close. Failure. Yeah. 
Yeah, high failure rate. Very tough business. Don't go in it. Don't, don't nobody, do it, nobody. Don't do it, yeah, you it's thrive. Such a hard no, I love it. I love it. It's passion for us, and so we do it. But um, uh, you know, landlords maybe initially were saying, "Just pay, you got to pay your rent." Even on construction sites, my rent was kicking in. I'm like, ah, I'm not even open, and I got to pay rent. I said, I can't do that. So take the keys. And so some of them were like, "Why would you want to waste your investment?" And I'd be like, "I'm like in triage, and I got to save the restaurants that are open. I can't be like building a rest. Worst time to be building a restaurant. So I had to be willing." to walk away. And in negotiations, your strongest position is being willing to walk away. So I'm like, just take the keys. I can't even be concerned about this. Even if I've, I've got millions of dollars out on construction sites, I'm like, take the keys. And then they come back and they say, well, I guess we don't have anyone else to come in our place. When you know, restaurants have been decimated. What retail? Like, are you going to get you know Neiman Marcus in there? That you know J right. Crew, who's coming in my place? So once they start to realize that, they're saying, okay, let's sit down at the negotiation table and work this out. So we're I'm working through every project. So. I don't have the answers right now, but I'm willing to walk away if I can't, you know, negotiate to be something that I can actually, you know, survive in the end and not just pour more money into something that I'll just lose my shirt. I just, I want to pause on, on the construction sites. It seems like there's going to be a long period of time before anybody considers opening up a new restaurant. Oh my this. God. Well, who would be surprised? You think so? Really? Mm-hmm. People are going to just jump in mm-hmm. some gangsters. Fuck well, it. The thing, the thing is, this is it, there is no restaurant life without restaurant death. Mm. And this is a revolving door. Dude, you just got philosophical as fuck right it's there. Re- <laughs> Evan's deep. I mean, <laughs> there, it's just, it, it's the way of this game. And mm-hmm. it's a, the unfortunate fact that from extraordinary, these extraordinary circumstances, there's going to be a lot of leases that are available. And there are a lot of people who want to open restaurants because it's the hot thing to do. Mm. I 100% agree. I I just think that there's going to be a lot of young people coming now because commercial real estate is going to be very affordable and they can come in. So I think a little bit there's going to be a changing of the guard. Well, restaurants in L.A. have very unique personalities, too. There's like celebrity spots, which I'm always like super wary of. Mm. And they always seem really gross. You know, but like I've eaten at Catch before, and there's like paparazzi waiting for you as you're walking in. You're like, yeah. what? Those is? places are done like, but by design. They're, yeah, they're, they're flashy and whatever. But um, we've always tried to create a safe haven, like a sanctuary for the celebrity clientele. You know, if you need to go out the back door, and you know, because there's paparazzi outside, absolutely, let's go through the kitchen. Whatever you need, and and. I think that's a lot of the reason why celebrities are attracted to Felix is that I'm just here to feed you and make sure you have a good time. And then if you need anything further on top of that, we're willing to supply that, whatever it is. And on top of that, the food's pretty good. But yeah, the food's amazing. But it's like the scenes. They're, those are weird. Like those are They're engineered. They're super weird. They're they, engineered that so way. So they, they probably tell the paparazzi, come hang out here. They probably have some sort of a weird deal with celebrities. Yeah, celebrities. Bring your celebrity friends. And celebrities do go there to be photographed, and it happens. It happens all over all over the place. But I LA, was, LA, this is LA. Yeah, I was listening to these dummies talk, and they were like, "We went to catch. There was no one famous there. Like they went there just to see famous people." What's well, like, thing? It's bizarre. It's fucking it's weird. Bizarre. It's fucking weird. Yeah. Um, when you look at uh, all the the restaurants in LA, is a, a really good place for restaurants. 
Would you agree with that? I think L.A. is the best place to cook right now. Really? In all of the United States. Absolutely. Why so? Just because, uh, you know, for very for a very long time, L.A. wasn't really respected as a, as a bona fide place for people to cook. People Why to was eat. that? Just no respect. <laughs> Just hmm. no respect. And it was always San Francisco. It was always New York. Hmm. And they um, pulled the Michelin Guide out of L.A. Yeah. The Michelin Guide existed here, and then they pulled it out, and they just brought it back last year. Why? Why did they, they pull did, it out? They didn't they think don't it was good enough. Seriously. What? Good really? Thing. For real? Yeah. Because we just have a different style and approach to dining. Fine dining it has its place in Los Angeles, but there's literally a handful of fine dining restaurants, and that's what Michelin is really geared towards rating: is fine dining restaurants. You have to do certain things, a certain cl- cr- uh, criteria that you have to hit to get a Michelin star. That's all there is. And they focus a lot on French and Japanese style uh, restaurants, and um, which is big in New York. It's big in San Francisco. It's big in Chicago. So they, they focus on that. So they pulled it. I think it was 2009. They pulled the, pulled the guide. Wow. They That's just didn't take us seriously. Not good enough, L.A., but they came back last year. Yeah, it was a lot of backlash when they came back. Okay, we think you're good enough now. And a lot of people in L.A. were like, this is not going to hold water. How does one get a Michelin star? Like, how does that work? They, they come down and they just decide. The tire company sends people out. <laughs> how weird is that, too? These people it's go out and they eat. Tire company that's a like French the no- tire company. Is it? Yeah. Michelin's from France, right? Yeah, man. But it's a strange thing that a tire company is the most respected. Yeah. They send inspectors. They're supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, anonymous. Uh, there's certain criteria that they, they also dine. You know, they it's always a two-top. They always, like, do special requests. What's a two-top? Two-tops, two people. Okay. Uh, or a deuce. Um, and, You're uh, talking restaurant talk <laughs> here. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they ask for birthday candles. They ask for special uh, adjustments to their meal. They always order a bottle of wine or two glasses. It's just there's a lot of uh, hidden kind of things that they do that give you the heads up that they're there. But uh, in my opinion, I don't think Michelin actually came to Felix. And uh, that's why we were left off because they couldn't get a rev- uh, reservation. Really? Yeah, man. We're booked out 28 days in advance at Felix, and for every day of that month, we have over 500 people on the wait list for that day. So does it matter if you're on a Michelin star? Does that mean anything to to you? No. Yeah. I don't do it for them. I don't do it for accolades. I do it for the people who show up to cook there and work there for my team, and and, and we do it for the people who come to eat. Well, just as a client or a, a, a customer, if you're not on that list, that list is bullshit it really is <laughs> you said it joe that list is bullshit it's, like if you're telling me the best restaurants in la is and your restaurant's not on it nonsense that you have a nonsense list like you better get a reservation son i just think the criteria is a little bit archaic yeah it's a little bit archaic and they had an exceptional chance to really uh create some um you know, some support for the list in Los Angeles, and they really created animosity through, like, throughout mm. the city. Is there any other established methods of judging restaurants? Everyone who sits down. Right. It's immediate. Word of mouth. Word of the, mouth. The real. Yeah. And that's, I just say scoreboard, man. Scoreboard. I'm busy every night. I crank every night. 
Your, your best work is in within your four walls and people walking out and word of mouth, right? Do you, right. Do you like, you know, we're not going to take out advertisements to say, come to Felix, you're going to have a great plate of pasta. It's going to be your friends telling you. How did yeah. you come to Felix the first time? Callan. Oh, because he lives Brian in the Callen neighborhood. Brian Callan called me up. Listen to me. Listen to me. <laughs> the best. The best restaurant on earth, Felix, in Venice. It's on Abikini. You're going with oh. me. The best restaurant. Trust me. I'm like, really? The, the best. The best. This is Brian. The best. I'm like, okay, like Brian is a real foodie. When Callan tells me something's amazing. And oh, I saw him the other day picking up to go. Yeah. When he says the best, I'm like, really? Okay. Like, he literally calls me. You must. You must eat there. You must. It's the best. It's He's a right. cult favorite. That's yeah. the best. Uh, that's the best. Uh, that's word the best of compliment. Mouth, word of yeah. mouth. It's the best compliment. People show up every day. And that's all that. You know, that's all that I need. Yeah, it's like Kevin Costner and Field of Dreams. Build it and they will come. They will come. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a beautiful thing when things get out purely by word of mouth, you know? It has more staying power that way. Sure. I mean, we, we um, just after we opened, we had um, an incredible accolade in Esquire magazine, yeah. which named us the number one new restaurant in America. That Best helps. That helps. Best new restaurant in America, Esquire. Wow. See? Yeah. Esquire so knows that, what the so, fuck they're so, talking about. Certain, fuck you, Michelin. Yeah, certain accolades <laughs> like that. <laughs> Um, you know, that's why we have a, it's a, it's a, you know, people will say about Felix, uh, the, the complaint is they can't get in yeah. because we had, we've had certain accolades. So anyone traveling to LA, they're like Esquire magazine, number one new restaurant. They want to, they want to check out Felix. So have you guys thought about making a larger version of Felix or do you like no. the fact that no. it's all manageable? It's small. It's exclusive. You know, I like to keep my eye on everything and that mm. restaurant's just big enough, uh, that, we can be busy, we can employ uh, a good amount of staff members, and we can serve a significant amount of people per night. And anything over that is just, you know, it, I think it loses some of the specialness of the restaurant. You know, that restaurant is, it's a jewel. It's a total and jewel. And there's an adage in business, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm. You can yeah. open another restaurant, do something else. But there's only there's only one Felix on Abikini, and... That's how it's going to stay. You know? Now, when you create a dish, say if you – is this something like if – whether it's a pasta dish or anything, is it something that you've already cooked before or do you experiment? Do you create things based on like what you already know about food and you have an idea? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean honestly, I, I try not to create. Obviously, I'm putting my – my own, not a spin, but my own fingerprint on it. But I'm really just drawing from thousands of years of tradition and just trying not to fuck it up and pay homage to the people who created it. Mm. And anything on the Felix uh, on the Felix menu, I've learned from someone in Italy. Like I don't make pasta shapes that I saw on YouTube because for <laughs> me that's cheap. It's mm. cheap. There's more value to me to learn it from a grandmother in Italy, in their region, in their house, and pass that knowledge on to me so that I can authentically present it in the, in the best way possible. So when you were learning and you were, you were in Italy doing this, did you have this understanding that all this would eventually play out like that and that you would become a great chef and that this is the idea that you're, you're putting in the work? Um, or were you just... Enamored by the the passion of making, I absolutely fell in love with the Italian approach to cooking, 
the Italian approach to living, um, their their reverence for land and tradition. Um, and uh, when I got, you know, I classically trained French, uh, you know, French food. I went to Le Cordon Bleu, whatever. I cooked for seven years, French and, and uh, Asian techniques at Spago and Beverly Hills. And as soon as I went to Italy, all of that went out the window. And I adopted this approach because I just absolutely fell in love with the country. And I've, uh, you know, that, that love, you know, it burns hot. What about that? Why, why does that resonate more than, say, French cuisine? or? Because other... French food manipulates. They manipulate, 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 mm. you know, sous vide and, and turning, you know, a tomato into something else to look like something else or tastes like something else. I just don't, I don't get that. So much goes into growing something that's already naturally perfect. Why wouldn't you just slice it open, put some sea salt on it and drizzle it with fine olive oil and eat it? Like, mm. that's fucking perfect. Why would you want to fucking puree it and then put jellify it and put it into it, you know? Mm. Like, why? I just don't get it. So um, I just left it all behind. All those manipulative techniques that are very, very popular in a lot of, uh, a lot of the world, a lot of the restaurants uh, in the world. I just, uh, it doesn't excite me. That's just personal preference. Personal. Because some people love French cuisine. They Absolutely. love all the weird little details. But for details. me, that's, that's like, how many times could you go to El Bouy? You know, how many times can you What's go El to... What's El Bouy? El Bouy's uh, um, Ferrand Adria's now closed restaurant and, and essentially the godfather of molecular gastronomy. And, um, you know, how many times can you go there and... and have the experience and say, fuck, I want to go back to that place because this was so good. It hits you in a different way. When you make food that people crave on a daily basis, it just hits different. It gets inside of you. You'll never forget that steak that you had at Felix. Never. And once it's in there, once it's in your mind, you're like, fuck, I'm going to have that again. Mm. And that's really my goal as a pasta maker, as a chef, is to create dishes that hit different. You know, and 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 to ultimately like evoke memory. Do you have the cacio e pepe at Felix? Yes. No. Okay. Yeah. So my goal is like, if you have the cacio e pepe at Felix, and you've been to Rome and eaten cacio e pepe, I want you to be like, fuck, this is better than Rome. Or remember that time we were in Rome, mm-hmm. we had cacio e pepe. This is better, or this is worse, or whatever. You evoke memories and you make them. And that's really the ultimate goal is is to get inside people's heads so that it, they come back. It's a weird thing, food. It's a, the mouth pleasure. It's a very strange thing. Like the, the flavor. It's like you're you're playing games with the inside of people's mouths. You know, that's a fucked up way to say it. But it's really <laughs> yeah. what it is. But like yeah, I, when those flavors come together, you like you savor the bite. You're like ah, like and for that brief moment while it's in your mouth and you're chewing it, you get this really amazing pleasure. But it's also, not, it's also a drug in a lot of chemicals, changing your chemicals. There's nothing you know. like it in the world. No, it's so there's important. Like and it. God, I appreciate it so much. I appreciate going out to a restaurant so much because of this pandemic. And I'm, I always appreciated it. It was always a, a, a wonderful treat to be able to go to a nice restaurant. But God, I appreciate it so much now when you don't have it. And I like cooking. I cook all the time. I enjoy it. But there's something about not having it that makes you go, oh, I'm going to appreciate this so much when you get to do it again. Yeah. That's great. Well, that that gives us hope. (laughs) Yeah. So from here, it's just 
waiting out the protests and then putting it all together again with the staff. And yeah. do you bring this? Is everybody available? Did you, are you going to be able to have the same crew? Some are, some are not. Mm. Some are not comfortable coming back, but they're not ready. And that's because okay. of the disease? Yeah. Are they getting unemployment? Uh, I think a lot of them are. Yeah, a I mean, the, the CARES Act really upped the um, unemployment. You know, to, you know, when you're making 600 net a week and your you know, decision is, do I you know, to keep taking this money or do I put my life at risk? And there's going to be a certain percentage that they don't want to come back to work. Mm-hmm. I don't blame them. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I wish there was more emphasis by the government put on having you use take strategies to strengthen your immune system and explain to people how important it is stop eating so much sugar stop drinking so much get some exercise all these things have a, a, a real measurable effect on your immune system but yet it's all fear it's all cover your face wear a shield don't touch this hand sanitizer it's like there's it's weakening the immune yeah, system exactly it's well I don't know if your immune system gets weakened because of non-contact or it gets strengthened because of contact. If it really does get weakened because of non-contact, you're dealing with a bunch of people with severely compromised immune systems going out marching together, stacking on top of each other. We, you know, it's a, a really kind of a crazy experiment to see where COVID is right now because of these uh, these marches. That's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. So, are you guys optimistic? How are you feeling? Yeah, always, yeah, always, always. always. A- 100% optimistic. Assault forward. Assault. Assault yeah. forward. We have to move forward. We have to go. Yeah. We, have, we don't have a, a choice. We must move forward. If we don't, we die. Once you stop moving, you die. And that's it. It's like we and just y- have to push. And you, and you have to be working at it. And, like, you know, there's a lot of restaurants that are closing and a lot of great restaurants that are closing to no fault of their own. Because, you know, again, for so many reasons, right, if you're a little bit weak, if you're a new restaurant, you're going to have a hard time. If you're an old restaurant and your sales are kind of weak, you're going to close. But right now, if you sit down and just kind of wait it out, and uh, you're going to die. But if you, you know, Felix in 48 hours became a takeout and delivery restaurant, there was no takeout and delivery. We because pasta. We didn't even have containers, dude. Mm. But in 48 hours... You know, here are your pasta kits, and you can have a perfect experience at home. You know, just boil boil your water in three minutes. You have a, a, a Felix dinner, but that was created by the team at Felix in 48 hours. A lot of restaurants, they just like they're sitting around and they're not, um, you know, they're not being proactive. And it's also about renegotiating with the banks and renegotiating with your landlords and looking for new revenue streams. So you have to be doing you have to be doing all of that work right now or you will not survive. I thought it was remarkably flexible that a lot of restaurants were putting together these kits that 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 became a thing. It's really very interesting. They yeah. just adapted and said, "Okay, how can we give these people instructions and then put together this food?" That's and basically then what we did. Mm. We 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 created the the kits uh, specifically geared towards shelter at home so that you could get restaurant quality pasta and just literally boil water and you're there. So you continue to make the pasta basically yeah. the same way and then do you send it to them with like very specific instructions? Absolutely. Do you put salt in the water, do Absolutely. this? Absolutely, the whole bit. Yeah. The whole bit is basically heat up the sauce, boil the water, add this amount of salt, boil it for three minutes, add it to the sauce, boom, add the cheese, you're good to go. It's been it's been successful, and and I think a lot of restaurants took uh, took 
you know, notes from us and started doing the same thing because it, it's really kept us alive. And obviously people fucking love pizza. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, one upside to this is we we weren't necessarily known for how good the pizza is at Felix, but now people fucking know how good the fucking pizza is at Felix. So you guys make good everything, man. <laughs> but, like, so if someone orders a steak, are you cooking steak or are you sending them no, steaks to cook? No, we're sending them prepackaged cryovac steaks uh, mm-hmm. with, in- with instructions. You know, everybody likes their steak cooked differently so we give general guidelines and pro tips of how to rest and you know right. we are send you, them salsa verde and we send them um you know steak salt and whatnot so are you telling them to cook on a frying pan like how are you how are you getting them to cook it um high heat either the grill or in the frying pan just but high heat is your thing high heat man high heat and then uh just intervals high heat take it off let it rest high heat take it off so you rest. cook more like especially the t-bones so when you do that, so you're you're not doing it in one shot, you're no. you're kicking it a little bit and then letting I'll it rest. I'll take up to an hour to cook like a thirty-five ounce T-bone. Really? Absolutely. Wow. So you bring up the temperature ex- very slow and in gradual increase. But you're doing it with high heat. Yeah. In these gra- yeah. why high heat? Because you, <laughs> yeah, that's all you got in restaurants. High heat. Low and slow is typically for braising, but if you're dealing with dry heat, it should be violent. It should be quick, and then let it rest. Mm. Especially the T-bone. You got to start the T-bone on the actual bone, right? So vertical. Start it on your oh yeah trigger, right? That's so how you do it. You start, start it, vertical? it on the bone so that the heat can radiate gently through the bone and and out towards the meat. So if you just throw the T-bone on. Uh, side and then sign it. You have a part that's connected to that actual T-bone, the separation bone. It's going to be raw, and everything else is going to be medium or medium rare. But if you start it on the bone, the heat is gently radiated through the meat. So and then halfway long? through, we take the the filet mignon off and cook the New York side a little longer and then uh, throw it back on. So how long do you make it sit on the bone? How, how long do you have it stacked vertically Probably like that? Probably like ten to twelve minutes. Oh wow! Yeah. I never even thought of that. Yeah, man. Huh. Bisteca Fiorentina. The master is Dario. Who's yeah. that? Dario Cecchini. He's, uh, he's, he's like the most famous. You should look him up. Uh, he's one of the most famous butchers in all of Italy. He quotes Dante. He's a fucking maniac. But uh, I went to his restaurant, I think, two years ago. Two, three is that in ago. Florence? Uh, it's in, um, I want to say, I yeah, can't remember. That yeah. Oh, there he is. There he is. What's good, Dario? Look at him. Yeah. Amazing. Look at that face. Amazing. <laughs> so happy. He's so <laughs> well, yeah, he's a, he's a wild man. He's a wild man. But he starts the, the T-bone on the bone. So he's, oh, Jesus he's Christ. He's a maestro. Wow. That fucking Absolute steak. master. That's preposterous. Absolute master. And so you learned from him? So wh- I did not learn from him. I, you know, I've been, we've been cooking, you know, I've been cooking for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So you pick things up. Along the way, cooking is just like like uh, anything else, like a practice. Okay, you got a doctor, you got a lawyer, right? You learn the fundamentals, and then throughout your career, you upgrade those fundamentals with new and relevant techniques or laws or whatever. Cooking is mm-hmm. the same thing. You get a foundation, and then you upgrade new and relevant techniques. And so, are you using a grill that uses uh, wood? Are you cooking yeah. on wood? Yeah, we're cooking on uh, California almond and. Uh, and white oak. Almond? Almond. Really? Almond for the smoke, because it, it'll go to fire like that, because it's so saturated with almond oil, and then oak for long oh. and slow cooking, so it burns super hot. 
So the, uh, the almond burns really quick and the oak burns very slow. And so you put different woods in for different times? Mm-hmm. like Yeah. So we, you started off with the we almond? We start with almond, and then we add oak, and then we add almond, and then we add oak, and it's just kind of fire maintenance is 90% of wood fire cooking. So it's just about how hot it burns yeah. and the distance, how the high coal the coals bed and are. And how deep the coal bed is and how you know evenly dispersed the heat is. We'll have a cool side and a hot side and then a fire side all within like a, you know, two square feet. Is there images of your grill set up no, online? I don't think no? so. Evan, your 10% technique right now is not sounding like 10% of your cooking. That sounds like a lot, right? Yeah. I'm like, hold on a second. That's, how could that be 10%? You're rotating the food. It's a fatty 10%. Mm. So did you set up this grill this way because like you, that's the only way you cook steak? You prefer to cook it over wood or... Uh, the design of uh, Felix, the actual shoebox of a kitchen that we have is really, you know, the design was based on the restrictions of the size. So um, we've crammed a hell of a lot into, I think it's just, just under 220 square feet, something like that. There's a fucking pizza oven in there. There's a wood fire grill. There's oh, wow. 10 burners. There's a fryer. There's and you're cooking 500 meals a night in that? Mm, I think top end is like 350, 350 people. So if you times that by three or four different different plates per person. Wow. We're some more than that. Built yeah. for, it's built for speed. I build restaurants for speed. And I know some restaurants they have those uh crazy like it's it's like a gas broiler. Yeah. You know, and sure. then some of them have it those... tastes like gasoline. Does it? Ugh, I can't stand them. Mm. It's like a Boston broiler. Top and bottom. What's a Boston broiler? It's like you. It's like a drawer. You pull it out. You mm-hmm. put the steak on. A lot of like Mastros and and old school steakhouses have them because it cooks with crazy intense heat from right. top and bottom at the same time. Yeah, but you don't. Mm. No, don't like it. Not Wood the way fire. to do it. Yeah, it's analog. I like to do as many things analog as possible. I still write with pencil. Really? Yeah. Man. But it's it's interesting because all this attention to detail, all the like. It's kind of shocking. I don't want to say shocking, but surprising. Like, oh, okay. Wow, almond and then oak. Huh, huh. But it makes sense if you eat there. You go, okay, this, someone has to put an insane amount of attention to detail mm. to make dishes that are that satisfying. Well, the, the simplicity kind of belies the, the background of the dish. You know, it looks really fucking simple, but there's 20 years of experience behind it. And that's, that's, that's like the ultimate goal. It should look simple. It should be delicious. But, you know, do you necessarily need to know about the wizard behind the, the curtain? No. I do. I want to know. <laughs> but it's also Evan procures absolutely the best product from everywhere and has the best relationships with the best farmers. And he's like, when you go to the farmer's market with Evan, he's like the, he's like the king of the farmer's they market. They the mayor. Oh, the, the mayor of the there. farmer's market. <laughs> it's kind of funny. And they're like, we've, we've saved you these you know, like, fiddleheads. You know, everything is handpicked. Uh, I go Wednesdays and Saturdays, not recently, obviously, but everything is handpicked. We don't do pre-orders. I go there. And that's, that's a... The, the very basis of cooking Italian. You so go you to get the market. all your ingredients from the farmer's market. Yeah, I would say 90 to 92% of all the vegetables that we use as wow. local farmers. Not, nothing outside of 500 miles. So you have these longstanding relationships with yeah, these farms? Absolutely. And, and do you talk to them in advance and they say, okay, we've got great this? No, we talk or? about weather. We talk about soil content. Mm. We talk about water content. We talk about if it's going to rain, what's coming up, what do you have in the ground, what are you planning for three months from now? I've smuggled seeds back from Italy so that they can, like, plant smuggled? stuff. That, you had to smuggle them? 
Yeah, man. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> People are listening. So is it some illegal? things are allowed, but like I've I brought certain species of you know uh, bitter greens and. Different and you types grow of these peppers. Yourself? No, I give them the farmers equally oh. distributed to, to different um, um, like microclimates because California is great, right? They have a ton of microclimates. So, say for instance, we buy broccoli, sprouting broccoli. I'll buy broccoli from three different farms and three different microclimates with three different soil contents, right? So, I'll buy broccoli from Kong Tao in Fresno, and then I'll buy broccoli from James Birch in Florabella, which is three rivers, and then I'll buy broccoli from Romeo Coleman. Uh, and all three of them have different soil contents. So James, all of James's water in Three Rivers comes from melting snow caps. So it has this huge amount of mineral co- uh, content in the soil. And then you buy uh, Kong's broccoli in Fresno. It's super hot with cold nights, complex sugar. So it's very sweet. And then you buy Romeo's broccoli, which is less than, I think, a mile and a half from the ocean. High salinity content in the broccoli. And you mix all the broccolis together, and it's like broccoli on fucking steroids. Could you tell if I gave you a piece of broccoli from each place no, where man, it came I'm from? I'm not that crazy. <laughs> but fucking like, like a sommelier. Like sommeliers <laughs> can tell you. They can sip wine, and a really good one can tell you where it's coming from. It's, it's, I think so, it's a little easier to do with wine. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, I think so. So you can't you, – but you know there is a difference. If you Specific, taste it, then you can yeah, tell. It's terroir. It's yeah. terroir, just like wine has terroir. terroir. What terroir. does that mean? It means uh, the, the territory, the ground, what's in the ground. The terroir uh, is, is specific to where that thing is grown. And it, terroir exists not only in wine but in fruits and vegetables mm. and all of it. And the, is this the same approach to meat? Like what kind of – A hundred percent. If if, uh, if you're raising steers uh, in Colorado versus Utah versus California, California has very, very little grass. And all the grass that's down tastes like dry-ass fucking grass because there's no water. So the beef tastes of that place. And if you're finishing cattle on corn – or feeding it 100% corn, it's going to taste completely different. The marbling is going to be completely different. The steaks I brought you today are 80-20. So 80% of the, of the steer's life is grass, and then they're finished on corn because America is literally in love with corn-fed flavor mm-hmm. and that mouthfeel from the fat. Yeah. So it's 80-20. But corn makes cattle sick. Right. That's so, why they pump them full of antibiotics. Right. So, uh, you know— the the good ranchers who practice animal husbandry they do it in a way that doesn't make the you know the animal sick so they're just doing it in the last stages of their life correct um is that what you prefer did you have you tried different kind like all 100% grass fed grass finished there are certain cuts of the of the steer that benefit from uh grass fed beef or just 100% grass like what diet cuts? Um, typically shanks working muscles because working muscles have way more flavor than non-working muscles like filet mignon. Filet mignon doesn't taste like fucking anything to me, right? Because it's non, it's a non-working muscle versus a shank, uh, is working all the time. That's why it's tough, right? So if I was to eat you, Joe Rogan, right? If I was to break you down like an animal, I would choose the working muscles and then braise them because they're, they're stronger, Versus your filet mignon, I don't even know where the fuck that would be on a human, but like, it would taste different, and it would have a different texture. Mm. Cattle's the same way. Non-working muscles versus working muscles. Have you ever gotten a hold of any wild boar? Hundred percent. Yeah, wild boar is huge in Italy. Do you do you cook Chingale. any of that? 
It's a hard sell on Avakini. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah, man. How so? Um, some people don't enjoy the the nuances. People would call it gamey, but uh, I don't find it gamey. If you treat it and apply certain, um, if you apply certain herbs and certain, I wouldn't call them spices, but apply certain ingredients to it, it takes the gaminess all the way up. Mm. So for me, if I cook wabur, I think Tuscany. I think of Abruzzo. I think of, you know, wild country. And for me, the, the hills of Tuscany smell like wild fennel and rosemary and mm. dirt. And you want to bring out those, again, back to the terroir and give those types of elements to the wild boar. And yeah, it makes was, it sing, man. Mm, it makes it sing. I brought that up because of the whole idea of the working muscles. Like, this, that's a working animal. It's a tough animal. Yeah. It's a tough animal. And most pork that's on the market... Uh, they don't really do anything. Right. They yeah, don't. they just sit around and eat. They just sit around and eat yeah. and get fat. And that's what people are really looking for when it comes to pork. But wild boar ragu has been pretty trendy for the last, I'd say, yeah. few for years. Sure. It's a weird thing to call it boar, too, because boar, boar just means a male pig. I'm yeah. sure there's a lot right. of female pigs in there, too. It's a, for sure. It's wild pig is what they really should call it. But for whatever reason, people like the word boar. It's a weird one, right? It's a weird one. Now, what about game? Do you do you, do you serve venison or any elk Again, or anything like that? Hard sell. Is it hard sell uh, on Abikini. Um I love venison. I love elk. I've I've cooked it uh, in the past, um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hard sell, and it, it goes back to knowing your clientele. Mm. You know, just because I want to uh, put some ego into the menu doesn't mean that that you know. Right, you don't want anything that's a hard sell. You want anything, this something that's going to be people just to to spend money. gravitate. Well, towards it's, it's it. also <laughs> the the menu at Felix, uh, the the entrees, the secondi. Mm. Um, it's, it's a very small section because our yeah. kitchen is very small. So. Uh, there's only going to be usually about two proteins on the menu. So you don't want to uh, – if you have a much larger menu, you can be a little bit more creative or put on those cuts that aren't as popular. Mm. But when your menu's that short, you have to look at you know sa- sales. Yeah. And also meat of any kind, whether that's fish or whatever, is extremely expensive. And you know, going back to the conversation of charging uh, a- an accurate amount of money for a dish, it's it's – it's hard. You know, take a look at lamb. Lamb wholesale is like fucking $18 a pound. For me, that's wholesale cost. Wow. So that means I need to charge you 65 bucks for three bones of a rack of lamb. 65 bucks. That's for me to cover the cost of running my kitchen out of that one dish. That's so crazy. And every single item on the menu is costed in that way. We have a cost. Then we have to figure out how much labor it costs to make that dish. And then we have to figure out our lights and our utilities and our rent and all that other shit. And then we got to put a price on it. So when you go out to eat, you're not just paying for the ingredients. You can do that at home. You're paying for the experience, the staff, the lights, the water, all of that. I hope people take that in consideration when they eat at a fine restaurant. I really do. Well, I think it's... It's, you know, I think people just people don't know, but right now yeah. people are talking about the restaurant industry because, you know, we've been hit so hard. And to understand that 90% of all of our revenue goes back out into the economy. So you're taking your money and you're paying your staff and you're paying your rent and you're paying your food costs. So <clears throat> a lot of it goes right back out. Most of it. The majority. 90%, 90%. God, it's such a crazy business. Just hearing you guys talk about it sounds like such a balancing act. And then to be hit over the head with something like this pandemic and everything getting locked down, yeah. it's 
you know, restaurants are so valuable to me. And it's, uh, it's one of the things that I worried most about this pandemic, uh, other than the lives, was like businesses that I enjoy and then restaurants specifically because it's such a great way to spend time with someone. I mean, uh, it's one of the great pleasures of life to, to be able to go to a place and have a fantastic chef sit you know sit you down and cook some amazing food and you enjoy it and that if that goes away well you know i think uh, over the last few years restaurants in general have uh, really in in north america let's say have really reached a pinnacle of cultural rev- relevance right now and uh, but it has to be reimagined we're not we're not going to go back to that for the next little while and you know there's going to be you know, there's one restaurant in the Netherlands who has a robot. Did you see that? With a, a little robot what? in The robot in some delivers town, your food? Maastricht, Maastricht in the Netherlands. A uh, little robot that comes and is the, the bus person clean, cleaning uh, the tables and also bringing your food. Look it up. <laughs> robot. The robot? Robot Netherlands restaurant. It Keywords. cleans the table? Cleans the table, brings your food. Um, yeah. And... A reopened Dutch restaurant is using robots to implement social distancing by serving and seating customers. That's fucking creepy. Look it's at that face. Like, look at that face. Look at that, those weird <laughs> murderous eyes. But they say they can be the customized. Abyss. And uh, you know? I don't know. I, I, I do have faith. I do have faith uh, in our community. I have faith in our industry that that we are creative enough to to get through this. And and we're just fucking stubborn as fuck we're all so stubborn we do this for for the love of doing it for well, the love of making people happy you work so hard and anybody who knows anybody that works in the restaurant business understands that it yeah. is a long grind i have faith in you guys i just don't have faith in the government i don't have wow. faith in what no. the way they've handled this and why should we yeah i just listen there's just there's a complete lack of of leadership at the top complete fucking lack of leadership and that's it uh it's fucking depressing man yeah it's fucking depressing and again the fish stinks from the head down well listen i'm in your corner i know you are and we we appreciate you and i know that you've mentioned felix a a couple of times on the podcast and you know it's really it's really appreciated and we we all need help Uh, restaurants in general um all need help Right I now. just love when someone does anything with the kind of passion that you guys display at your restaurant. Whatever it is, whether you're making music or you're writing books or you're making food, I just love when someone does something like that because it makes me excited about all the things that I do. I think we, in, in, you know, as human beings, as we interact with each other and we explore each other's lives and what what other people do for a living what their passions are you get energized by that you get energized by other people's work by their enthusiasm their enthusiasm is really contagious you know and that's one thing that i've really got out of your restaurant it's it's very contagious it's very obvious that you guys take extreme pride in what you do and you do it so well yeah thank you no it's it's what keeps me going is is the like you said it's the enthusiasm of our staff and the people that come back to our restaurant again and again and it's what keeps us going you know that's our reward and we're so used to that immediate reward of sending the food to the table and seeing people enjoy it that's like the drug to us mm. is making people happy it's it's immediate and the camaraderie of everybody 100%. working together to provide that 
Yeah. And the, and the good news is we're not going anywhere. And we know now that we are going to make it to the other side. Yeah. Beautiful. That's I'll be there. Sure. We can't wait. I hope so. I'm Thank you. you to it. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Thanks Thank for you being so here. Thank you, Joe. My pleasure. I can't wait to eat there again. <laughs> I can't right. wait to have you. We did it. Thank Thanks, you. Man. Bye-bye. Bye. Ow. Oh, that's a relief to take those off. <laughs> Woo. That was more than two hours.